Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You're listening to Comedy Central. Now listen, after last night's show, uh, this is very sweet. I got so many encouraging words from some of my political colleagues, and I, I wanted to read some of them from, uh, for you. This is a, an email I got from, uh, from Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it says, Cal, if you don't donate $5 by tonight, we're all going to die. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. That was so touching. Anyway, we've got a great show for you tonight. Our guest tonight is the Foreign Minister of Pakistan. But first, let's get into the headlines. Okay, let's kick things off with a big announcement from President Joe Biden. You remember during the 2020 campaign, Biden said this. By the way, no more drilling on federal lands, period. Period, period, period. Period, period, period. <laughs> Comma. <laughs> Because now Biden has approved a major oil drilling project on federal land in Alaska, which is disappointing. But hey, when you're that age, that's the only kind of drilling you can do. No, come on, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. This guy f The crazy part about this drilling project is that they'll be installing a device called a thermosiphon that keeps the permafrost solid enough for drilling while it simultaneously melts due to global warming. (laughs) Guess ConocoPhillips has an irony division? I mean, keeping the permafrost alive so they can kill it slowly, that's like some Silence of the Lambs serial killer shit. Would you f*** the planet? <laughs> I'd f*** the planet. I worked at the White House. Now, <laughs> thank you. Now listen, 
listen, listen. The, the good news, the good news is that Biden is also flip-flopping in a good way. Because back in the day, Biden used to think marijuana was a gateway drug. But now he's doing stuff like this. President Biden is offering help to people who have a federal conviction for simple marijuana possession. They can now apply for a presidential pardon. To qualify, applicants must have been charged or convicted in federal court or D.C. Superior Court before October 6th of last year. This is huge! And this is long overdue, yeah! This is a moment of special congrats to the advocates who have been pushing for this for so long. They really did it. Now, they convinced someone with five decades of experience in Washington to change his mind. That's not easy. That would be like convincing Mitch McConnell to let Democrats appoint judges or <laughs> convincing Chuck Schumer that his glasses should be resting on the top of his nose. <laughs> top. In any case... If you're wondering what the Oval Office looks like now that Joe Biden is a total stoner, it probably looks something like this. It's the same. <laughs> it's 2023! People who smoke weed don't put tapestries on their wall anymore. I mean, yeah, the portrait of George Washington does glow in blacklight now, but that's it. <laughs> Mostly the same. Anyway, let's move on to some science news. Apparently, NASA is tracking an asteroid that could slam into Earth on Valentine's Day in 2046. Which means that friend of yours who always does those sad Valentine's Day posts like, I'm gonna die alone, actually is. <laughs> yeah. But if you're in a relationship, then in a way, it would kind of be beautiful to die on Valentine's Day, you know? Making sweet love with your partner one last time. Or if you're married, laying in bed, too full from dinner to have sex, watching Paul Blart one last time. Either way, super romantic. In other scientific news, researchers did a study on flamingos. And it turns out that flamingos form cliques, just like high schoolers. This is one of those studies where I feel like we need to know more about the scientist who did this study. Because maybe the flamingos just didn't want to hang out with them specifically. <laughs> Seriously, though, this sounds terrible. It's tough enough being a flamingo. Now you also have to deal with flamingo mean girls? <laughs> they must be so cruel. <laughs> Do you see how short her neck is? Oh, my God. It's giving emu. And look at her legs. They're like a whole centimeter thick. It's like paging Dr. Kankles. I heard she got a beak enhancement and the zookeeper paid for it. They're like totally f right? Oh, wait, 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 she's coming over here, she's coming over here. Hi, Jenny. Oh my God, you know what? You look incredible. Okay, bye. Ugh, I literally hate her. And finally, thank you. Ridiculous. And finally, let's check in on my home state of New Jersey. I'm sure... I'm sure they're not doing anything incredibly stupid. The city of Newark is admitting it got scammed. Earlier this year, Mayor Raz Baraka invited who he thought was the Hindu nation of Kailasa to City Hall for a cultural trade agreement and to become sister cities. But it turns out Kailasa isn't a real nation, but rather the invention of a scam artist and fugitive who's from India, who's been on the run since 2019. I have the immunity of non-prosecutable and 
immunity and protection as the head of the state. He was arrested there years earlier, accused of sexual assault charges by five women who say he abused them at a religious retreat. Back in New Jersey, a few days after this ceremony, the city says it realized it had been deceived, calling it, quote, a regrettable incident. Jesus, Newark. How can an entire city get catfished? Not a single person realized they never heard of this country before. Not on a globe, not at the Olympics, not as a, not as a stage in Street Fighter. Look, if you can't find it as a cuisine on Grubhub, it's not a real country. There must have been so many red flags. The biggest one being that anyone wanted to be sister cities with Newark. Look, to be fair, just because a country was started by a sex criminal doesn't mean it's fake. Just ask Thomas Jefferson. For more on this, please give it up for Desi Lydic. Desi, what did, what did you make of this story? Oh, well, Cal, um, as a white person, I would like to know what you think of this story. Because uh, for me, I don't know, this is a, a little dicey. I don't want to upset anybody with any statements about whether Kailasa is a real country. Okay, well, it's not. It's, it's not a real country, it's a cult. Right, right, right. But even so, I honor its culture and its rich traditions. Because what is culture if not culture? Desi! Look how they're dressed. Does that look real to you? Uh, yes. No. 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 Come on. I, I, Th those are just costumes. Whoa, Cal. Their culture is not a costume. No, no. That is literally a costume. Desi, I, I, I understand what you're trying to do. I, I, you you want to be an ally. I, I definitely appreciate that. But... Kailasa does not deserve your allyship. It, its leader is a sexual predator. Oh, absolutely, yes. And I condemn all sexual predators. At the same time, it is important to support diversity among sexual predators. No! Uh, 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 no, 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 it's not. Desi, stop. This is a cult, and they scammed the city of Newark. Of course they did. Yes, yes, they did. And they've been forced into a cult, into cult behaviors by Western imperialism. And isn't that the real scam? No, no, no. Well, yes, yes. But, but no, wait, now you're confusing me. Hold on. There is no Western imperialism against Kailasa. There is no Kailasa. There are no Kailaseans. Um, we say Kailaseans X now. No, we don't! <laughs> Desi, look, look, I, uh, uh, I am giving you permission to criticize this fake country. On behalf of brown people, it's okay. Uh, I'm not worried about brown people, Cal. I'm worried about other white people. If I disrespect this fake nation, they'll make my real Twitter a living hell. Does Kailasa look like a scammy cult? Yes. Do I trust white people on Twitter to know the difference? No. Which is why I am proud to announce that The Daily Show, hosted by Cal Penn, is now also a sister city with Kailasa. What? No!
my favorite sport. We'll be right back. Oh, my gosh. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Thank you. Welcome back to The Daily Show. Look, a lot of people would be surprised to know that one of my favorite sports is NASCAR. Now, I know I don't look like your stereotypical NASCAR fan, but I also don't look like your stereotypical Abercrombie and Fitch homosexual. Yet here we are. So what do I love about NASCAR? Take a look. Yeah, I know you're looking at me and you're like, seriously, Cal, you've been a NASCAR fan for 12 years? Yes, my fellow Blue State libs. Grab a beer and come with me. NASCAR has it all. Day drinking, grilling, whoever this guy is and whoever this guy is. Wait, is that Kid Rock? You get here on this track and you feel the rumble inside you when those cars are going around. I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now. I felt the rumble in my dick. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't mad about it. I'm not mad about it either, yes. Okay, here's the deal. NASCAR is different from what you probably think. I feel like people think it's just really like a redneck thing. And I mean, it kind of is, but it's for everyone, you know? I'm like, I've watched NASCAR since I was like 12 or before then because of because of my parents going to NASCAR races. Black people love racing. People may not realize how much African-Americans love not just NASCAR, any form of racing. 
Bubba Wallace is one of the biggest stars in the sport, and he happens to agree. I think, you know, from from outside looking in, especially minorities, feel the, the stigma's been there that they're not welcome. And I've always been like, that's not really true. You know, I've been in NASCAR, this is, my career has been 20 years. Yeah, 20 years is about Aren't right. Aren't you like 29? I'm 29, yeah. Okay, yeah. wow. I can tell you right now there is no New Jersey parent who would let their kid drive at nine. <laughs> so, so I always get the question, what's it like being an Indian American actor? I would imagine it also drives you insane to yep. get the question, oh, what's it like being a black driver? Yep. So uh, what's it like being a black driver? Yeah, so clickbait and news outlets, they have to get their viewership up, and uh, the way they do that is black driver. Yeah. I don't walk around saying I'm the black driver. Yeah. So yeah, you embrace it and you go out and then enjoy what you do. After I got my media clickbait, we moved on to an issue that everyday Americans actually care about. All right, a lot of people really want to know this. How do you pee in 400 miles? I can't go 45 minutes without having yes. to Yes, so have you ever been in a high adrenaline moment? Well, once. I once rode a cheetah in a movie. Did you have cheetah in that moment? Uh, no. Exactly. So you're really in the zone then for, yeah, you're for the zone, that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, and they always say if you do pee in the car, then you got to be there Monday morning to clean it out. Oh. Do you want to clean it out? You don't have somebody for that? They're not gonna do it. Ears, ears, ears. Here's another stereotype. Drivers aren't real athletes. They just lazily sit there making left turns. The athleticism side of it, to me, you know, our heart rates, you know, peak at about 170. Okay. And then during the race, you're around the 140 area. I mean, that's a, that's a high heart rate for a sustained long period of time. Yeah. And hydration is huge. I can lose up to about seven pounds in the race car on a hot in day. In one race? Yes, sir. Oh, can I drive this race? I would love to look you you know, good a physique, little... Man. I mean, thank you, thank good. you, thank you, I appreciate yeah. that. And the drivers aren't the only jocks on the track. Meet Delanda Wendano, a former college athlete who trained as a tire changer after being recruited through NASCAR's diversity initiative. Everybody knows how to change a tire. Well, I don't know how to change a tire, but what's the big deal about changing tires? It's just about how fast you can do it. One tire can take like maybe two, three seconds. We did reps after reps after reps every time because I think two tenths of a second cost a lot of money for a team if you make a mistake. As someone who was recently told he had a good physique, I knew that joining the pit crew would be easy. So like the jack man's jacking the car up, I'm like, jack that shit up, he jacks it up, the guy's giving him some gas, I grab the other tire because I gotta take it out, and I bring it back like this, and I kick it over there, and then everyone's like, you're almost gonna win. So I grab it like that, and I bring it back over here, and I'm like, okay, great job, and the driver takes off. So he wins the race, and we win a lot of money. Yeah, in theory. I, I think we missed a couple steps. Oh, right. shit! Yeah, and that, that's a penalty. After crushing it with the pit crew, I wanted to see if there were any indoor jobs with air conditioning. There's just so much more data and science that goes into it than I think anybody really realizes when they see cars going around in circles, right? So data comes from the cars, uh, and then the car has its speed, it's got its, its RPM and the gear that it's in. That's like, is the car loose, like wants to spin out or is it tight? We look at what the driver is doing with the wheel and then we try and tell him, hey, you need to turn the wheel less or you need to be on the gas more. This, uh, this <laughs> sounds like cheating. Tom Brady fans would love this. Absolutely. This is- As a number crunching genius, JR represents the new NASCAR and has had a front row seat to the sports evolution. The sport's way different than it has been in the past. You know, my husband and I talk about it all the time, even myself working for Bubba. You know, I think a lot of people have always thought that this sport was kind of out of reach, not only because of they couldn't get into the sport, but also because they wouldn't be accepted by the sport. I mean, I think that just being out there and being vocal is, is super important, and I never thought 12-year-old me would be doing it. <laughs> 
Well, this was 12-year-old me, and he would have been terrified by what I'm about to do. Uh, where do I connect the uh, Bluetooth for the podcast? Oh, I wish. These things are meant for it to go fast, so anything extra, we just pull out of the car. Okay. I can't drive stick. Is that a problem? No, you're good. Okay. We basically just put you in fourth gear, just push you off, man. Do only the uh, snowflake drivers get the push since we can't drive stick? Pretty much. Here we go. This is real inclusion. NASCAR making space for athletes like me who can't drive stick. Off the clutch, give a gas, off the clutch, give a gas, off the clutch, give a gas, give a gas. That left pedal, push it in, grab that stick and put it all the way down to the right. One stick. The shifter, it's that big stick in the middle right there, that car. Okay, push your thing, pull it, push it forward. There you go, you're doing good out there. All good, this is awesome. Oh, I can feel my thing. Woo! A little scared at first, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I then I was like getting into it, and then after I peed my pants, it was such a relief. That was awesome. Okay, that was fun, and I lost two pounds. But there is a more social way to enjoy racing. Hey guys, can I come up? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. This is the infield where families camp out for the weekend to watch the races up close. Are you thirsty? Sure. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, guys. How long have you been coming here? Uh, for 23 years. We're all family. You definitely have the best view. And that's really what NASCAR is all about. Family, speed, and crushing beers on top of an RV with a group of new friends. Cheers. All right, stay tuned, because when we come back, the foreign minister of Pakistan will be joining me. So don't go away. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. My guest tonight is the Foreign Minister of Pakistan. Please welcome Bilawal Bhutto Zardari. How are you? Good to see you, Bilawal. Good to see you. Good to see you. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for being here. Now, for, for folks who don't know, uh, your mom was former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, um, who was assassinated mm -hmm. in, in 2007. Um, but now you are the youngest foreign minister in Pakistan's history. You're 34. That's true. Yeah. And you're a very young country. I think the median age in Pakistan is only 20, something like that, roughly yeah, 20. Yeah, uh, 60% of our population beneath the age of 35. Wow. So how does, how does your age create an, an opportunity for, uh, for leadership in a country that's so young? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think that most of, uh, if you look at the politics in Pakistan, or the political landscape, landscape, it's one or two generations above me that are the, that are the main yeah. players. So I'm sure that uh, given that I am so young, I'll bring a, bring a unique uh, perspective. Um, and I think that's so important because everybody who's in power right now or in positions of influence and making decisions for our country, um, they'll live for 10, 20 years. Yeah. We have to think about sort of the long picture and yeah. how uh, climate change and poverty and all the you know, income inequality and discrimination that people are facing across the country. How are we going to address those issues in the long term? Do you feel like there's ever a generational divide? Oh, between the people who you I think absolutely I think it's a it's been an experience yeah. working with people from uh, a whole host of different age groups and um absolutely I felt of course sort of throughout my political career just as a result of my age perhaps the same ideas same suggestions are uh, given uh, from other people of a uh, of a more senior age would be taken more seriously as opposed to coming from um, a younger perspective but at the same time I think uh, I'd like to say I've proven over the course of time whether I was in opposition or as for foreign uh, minister that age is just a number yeah. and uh, we can still get quite a lot done. So it's it's timely having you here uh, tonight. Yeah, topical. Right, right now, uh, you know, Pakistan is, is facing some unrest over the mm -hmm. imminent arrest of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. Um, Mr. Khan says that your government wants him arrested uh, so that he's disqualified from upcoming elections. Is that true? Okay, so unfortunately, Pakistan is facing a, a perfect storm. Not only do we have heightened, bipart heightened partisanship and political polarization to the extent that uh, political parties uh, or political stakeholders aren't even in a position to sit in a room uh, and discuss issues amongst themselves. We're also facing an economic crisis. Uh, we're facing a security threat and security crisis and the fallout from you know, the fall of uh, the Afghan government and the increasing the terrorist attacks that are taking place with increasing frequency in Pakistan. We just faced the biggest climate catastrophe of our history, where a third of the land mass of our country was underwater. That's something that my generation, generations to come, are going to be paying the price uh, for the decisions that others have taken. And unfortunately, in all this chaos uh, and in all these, uh, while we're facing these simultaneous crises, uh, we have the question of Mr. Khan. Uh, who believes that the Pakistani constitution doesn't apply to him, the Pakistani law doesn't apply to him, that um, he can get up and leave, he's resigned from parliament and run away from the system. In this particular instance, it's not a question of me wanting to arrest Mr. Khan. Uh, I've, uh, I come from a, a family who faced genuine arrest mm -hmm. in the face of uh, military dictatorships. My mom, my mother, when she was uh, younger than me, she battled an Islamist dictator at the time who threw her in prison. My father spent 11 and a half years in prison and was tortured without a conviction. I would never want any politician in my country or any country to go to, uh, to, go to jail for political reasons. In Mr. Khan's case, he's under the threat of arrest because of his ego, 
he says that the, the courts are saying that he has to come to court and fight his cases, whatever cases are against them. And he says, I'm an Imran Khan and I'm too important and I'm not going to turn up to court. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks has been a complete mockery of the judicial system in Pakistan, of rule of law, of the constitution in Pakistan, where had he gone to court, there's probably no reason he had to fear imminent arrest. Because he's violated court orders time and time again, finally the courts have instructed the police to produce him before court, uh, but he's called on his citizen, on his workers, on his supporters to come and confront the police. The police went to him with no intention of violence. And as you may be aware, Pakistan's history is full of politicians who have gone to prison, mm -hmm. right, wrong, or, or otherwise. In this case, um, Mr. Khan is refusing to even present himself before court. He's uh, refusing to uh, defend himself. I'm sure if he's innocent, he'll be able to clear his name through the judicial system. So we're caught in a situation where there's this political um, chaos mm -hmm. uh, uh, playing out on the streets and distracting from the real issues that are affecting everyday Pakistanis. What does that say about the state of democracy in Pakistan? Is it fragile right now? No, absolutely. Pakistan has been uh, most of our history under direct military a dictatorship. After the assassination of my mother, there was a, a brief period of democratic transition. Political parties came together. They reached a consensus that, uh, you know, we removed all the dictator's laws from the constitution, devolved power to parliament, had peaceful transfer of power for the first time in our history from one government to another. And those people or those uh, forces that benefit from undemocratic rule in Pakistan didn't like that. Uh, so they, uh, they, they, they supported Mr. Khan and brought him into power. And that's now uh, blown up not only in those individuals' face, but has had severe consequences for our country. You, you talked about your own family. And so I just wanted to expand on that, because I think for an American audience, especially, you see a lot of politicians, not just in Pakistan, but obviously many countries, uh, regardless of political party, who are accused of corruption, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. accused of other charges, in and out of prison, yeah. or you know, violence. How do you know whether someone has committed a credible violation of law or whether something is politically motivated? What's the litmus there and, and how do your voters, not just from your party, but overall in Pakistan, how do they respond to that and how do you take that temperature? So that is something that I've lived with my entire life because my mother was prime minister of Pakistan for a few years, but she spent most of her life in opposition, either in country, in prison, or in exile, fighting not one, but two military dictatorships. She spent uh, those the 30 years of her life fighting politically motivated cases where the perception was built in the media and otherwise, uh, this uh, corruption and a whole host of allegations. After uh, she was assassinated, her name has been cleared from each and every single case uh, that was lodged against her in her lifetime. And I, as her son and who's someone who lived through that, uh, really wished that it happened while she was still here and amongst us. Unfortunately, that was the tradition of Pakistani politics. After my mother's assassination, the big political parties in Pakistan came together and they said, look, if we're going to be fighting amongst ourselves all the time and taking our political differences as personal differences and whoever's in power, they arrest the, uh, the opposition, then we're never going to get anything done as a country. And we saw a gap of 10 years where we didn't go after each other with two different political parties came into power. They saved up, they served out their term, were voted out from the people, uh, and the next uh, political party came into place. Mr. Khan is the one who unfortunately broke those precedences. So you're, you're talking about essentially what, what sounds like a fragile democracy Extremely and things that are, are malleable and moving back and forth. 
Um, to what extent does that impact economics in Pakistan? I, I know that right now the IMF uh, and you are, uh, you know, sort of uh, at odds, and I, I know that you know they're withholding some money until tax reforms are are met. Um, I believe that was, correct me if I'm wrong, that was negotiated by a previous government, but now you're in power, Mr. so Khan, your, dealing the your party needs to follow up on, uh, yeah. uh, you know, on what was negotiated. So how does that political instability then affect uh, So two economics? things. As far as the dem how democratic are we right now, I would say we're in a democratic transition, mm -hmm. and um, I hope that this goes well, and we transition uh, towards a more democratic society, because I believe that Pakistan is facing a whole host of problems, but no matter the problem, the answer uh, is uh, in more democracy. But I might be wrong, and it could go uh, the other way. As far as our economic situation is concerned, as I mentioned, we're in, this, we're in the perfect storm. You're absolutely right. The deal with the IMF was made by the previous government, and the previous government violated that deal uh, with the IMF that put Pakistan in an extremely precarious economic situation. We've also, like the rest of the world, feeling the economic impacts of the war in Ukraine, of the COVID pandemic, uh, and uh, at the same time, as a result, the fall of Kabul a year ago, uh, we've seen the return to terrorism in our country, an increase in terrorist activity that has its own impact uh, on economics, uh, and uh, the, the, the climate catastrophe, the floods that took out five million acres of standing crops, one in seven Pakistanis, that's 33 million people, uh, were affected. Many people are still affected. I wanted to ask you about that. All of these things coming well, together, sorry, yeah. all of these things coming together, um, put our economy under incredible strain and stress. And you're absolutely right. Our negotiations uh, are still ongoing and have not been concluded uh, with, the, uh, with the IMF. And I completely, I'm actually left to center political party who within our own politics calls for, uh, you know, an increase in, in tax revenue, equal uh, sort of uh, addressing the income inequalities, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. But at this point of time, I think that when Pakistan is facing such a perfect storm, some problems of our own creation, but some like the flood and others that are of, not of our own, that um, the conversation with the IMF really should take that into account. And I don't think it is at the moment. But in terms of how the tax structure works in Pakistan, I don't want to get too in the weeds yeah, sure. on tax structure. I know that's not that's not your job. But one, one of the things that I was reminded of when I was when I was prepping for our conversation, I know that you're from a, historically from a, a relatively wealthy landowning family, and there are many in Pakistan. Uh, do you know who Bernie Sanders is? Yes, I do. Okay, so I know Bernie, who Bernie is. So Bernie, you know, Bernie's a big fan of making yeah. sure the one percent pay their absolutely, fair share and all that. Absolutely. Big topic here. Is there a version of that in Pakistan? Can the wealthiest families do something to sort of help? So, Economically I think that's that, so interesting yeah. that you answer that question. Um, from the mainstream political parties in Pakistan, with the Pakistan People's Party, and we are the left of center uh, political party. Today, we're a left of center political party. When we started out, we were actually a socialist uh, political party. Okay. Uh, and my grandfather was uh, heading the party at the time, became the country's prime minister, and that's exactly what he did. He rebelled against his own class because he was a rich, wealthy landlord that owned uh, masses of land. But he uh, led land reforms, uh, which took away 
vast amounts of lands for the wealthy and redistributed it amongst uh, the landless uh, people of the area. He read industrial reforms where 22 families in Pakistan had like a, a death grip on our economy and they own all the industry in our country. So then he nationalized uh, the industry so that it worked for the many and not for the few, Mala Bernie. Um, at the moment, unfortunately, where we are in Pakistan is very far away from the vision that uh, my, the, the founders of my party laid out or uh, the efforts that uh, my mother did as far as uh, addressing the gap between the rich and poor. And what we have uh, is a, a system where the elites like myself can weather these storms without much uh, pain or without feeling much difference. Uh, but whether it is our deals with the IMF or our own internal economic policy, there's an outside burden on the poorest of the poor. There's an outside burden, a burden uh, on the bottom of the pyramid. And what we'd like to see, uh, I believe the only way for us to have uh, a functioning economy that works for everyone would be not only uh, for everyone uh, to pay, pay their fair share as far as taxation is concerned, but we do need a fundamental reform about how we talk about our economy and what decisions we take domestically in order to achieve that. I know that last year you did uh, a lot of work raising awareness on the fact that a third of your country was underwater from those devastating floods. Um, that's obviously faded from international news since then. Can you give us an update on the status of the people affected? You know, by thank you so much for asking. Uh, we're a country that has experienced floods and monsoons consistently. This was something apocalyptic out of sort of, you know, a la uh, Noah's Ark floods scale. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and we're still battling with the consequences. I absolutely have been raising awareness. I'm very grateful that the international community stood with Pakistan on not one but two occasions. Oh. One at the COP, where Pakistan was the chair of the developing countries group of G77, and we helped push uh, for loss and damage to be included on a COP's agenda, which I think is a big achievement as far as the climate movement is concerned and the future of developing countries. And the second is when we had held a resilient, climate resilient Pakistan conference in Geneva, uh, where the international community stood with us and, and pledged some money for reconstruction. As far as attention is concerned, of course, international media attention span is very small and that has moved on. Um, but the sad thing is that domestic attention has moved on. I come from a, the province of Sindh, which was the most devastated. Two thirds of our province was, uh, was underwater as a result of this flood. The political conversation has moved on. We're talking about whether Imran Khan's gonna get arrested or not. And we're not talking about the millions of people who are at the moment in danger of, uh, you know, I don't like to throw about words like famine, but there's a food, food scarcity issue for them. The people that are thrown into poverty. I mean, there's this impression, right, that they're, they're these, oh, it's a completely impoverished people that had no hope and they're still poor. I mean, it's awful that anybody get affected by floods, but I just want to emphasize that of these people, 33 million people that were affected, some of these people, would, I mean, they're not living the most uh, elitist lives or the, 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 the most well-off lives, but they were getting by. They had their little shop, they had their little bit of land that they were eking a living out of, and they've been thrown into poverty. And it's gonna take us a while to claw back from that. Uh, and until we do so, uh, unfortunately, I wish I could stand here and say that my country was paying the attention that it should uh, to this issue, but unfortunately, I'm afraid to admit we're being distracted. Uh, 
I want to ask you about solutions also. Um, you mentioned uh, loss and damage. Uh, is, is that what you said? Yeah, Cup? loss and damage Cup. Cup. Okay. Absolutely. Can you talk about what that is and then also what are, what are sort of the plans on addressing climate longer term for Pakistan? Okay, so the two arguments around the, the sort of the, the loss and damage debate, yeah. the, the sort of the more basic sort of more activist uh, approach to that conversation is that uh, rich countries, industrialized countries have created this crisis and they're a whole host of countries. This climate uh, climate crisis. The climate yeah, crisis, yeah. Uh, and it is a result of it's their industrialization, right? It's the rich world's industrialization uh, that the poor world is paying the cost of in the form of massive floods or right. massive droughts, and, um, and, and, and there should be some loss of damage for this. Uh, some, some people advocate for reparations. Mm -hmm. I'm actually not one of those people. Okay. I, I like to be sort of you know, left in our approach to politics and things, but I also like to get things done. I mean, reparations-wise, uh, I feel like India, Pakistan, and the yeah, U.S. Got, could get got, some like, shit from well, the U.K. That's exactly if, what I you mean. Know. That's exactly what I mean, right? So we haven't got any post-colonial uh, reparations yeah. uh, and slavery reparations. The conversation hasn't gone anywhere. I mean, fair enough. The activists who want to argue for that should, and it's it's a legitimate point to make. But I think a practical approach is for us to say, okay, loss and damage exists. Let's decide who's going to pay for it later. But actually, it's a problem that we all have to address together. And international financial institutions are just not equipped to deal with even one climate tragedy to the scale of what we faced. Now, the unfortunate thing is not just one country. We have historic floods in Pakistan, so we have historic droughts in China. And at the same time, you've got forest fires here in, in California, or it's flooding. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to rework international financial institutions, rather than looking at this as reparations, how are we going to work together to come up with the money to address loss and damage as a result of climate change? The, the fight to put loss and damage onto the agenda is a 30-year-old fight. At the last COP, it was achieved under the chairmanship of Egypt that it's now going to be on the agenda. Okay. It's going to take a while for this to be uh, argued out and the international community to come to a decision. It's an, important, it's an important achievement. But rather than, I don't want us to pith, pit the global north against the global south uh, and, 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 and try and find solutions to climate change like that. I believe that this is a problem too big for just America to deal with on their own or just China to deal with on their own. This is something that the world has to come together and decide, are we going to be distracted uh, by war and conflict and politics as usual, or are we going to find a solution to this problem? And I have just, thanks guys. Um, and I can say that like experiencing, uh, I I've just experienced this uh, uh, from the Pakistani perspective, from this one flood that wiped out so much and caused so much devastation that we're not equipped for that. I see how, whether it's domestic politics or geopolitics get in the way of things we even can do now. Uh, so I hope that, I mean, I know that your president has done a lot of stuff domestically on climate, and I really hope that that sort of approach, that sort of mentality is translated out into the world stage, and we can work together to sort this out. Otherwise, Pakistan is, we, we've contributed less than 0.1% to the global carbon footprint. But we are amongst the 10 most climate-stressed countries on the planet. Did you know that there's a third poll 
there's a North Pole and a South Pole that we all knew about and we're worried about it's melting. The third pole is in Pakistan, in the Himalayan regions of our country. Is this country. real or is this a conspiracy theory This is theory really, thing. Okay. this is right. real. This right. is, like, so, we, we so like our third, numbers to go up, so but I just, so you know. the third pole yeah. is technically in Pakistan, with okay. the largest number of glaciers uh, uh, on the peaks of uh, the, the, the mountain ranges between our two countries. And I'm, as a result of climate change, obviously the North and South Pole are going to be melting, but the third pole is going to be mm. melting. Our rivers are fed by these glaciers. So what that means is, in the short term, as, these, uh, as this pole melts, as these glaciers melt, we will be faced by floods. The flood that we just experienced, by the way, not a riverine flood, a flood that came from the skies. We're predicted to face far more greater flooding from the rivers as these glaciers melt. Once these glaciers melt, our water source is done. We won't be able to provide drinking water to the people that live in my country. This is one country's problem when it comes to climate change. There are a whole host of other countries that are facing. Uh, for them and for us, the crisis is here and now. This is not a tomorrow issue. For all of these issues, is there, is there capacity to take action both in the short or long term for you? Or is, is that something that is being worked out? And I, yeah. I'm asking that also in the context of you are clearly very passionate about this issue. This almost goes back to my first question about your, you being a, a, a young leader in Pakistan, I would imagine you feel this issue a lot more than others might. So there, there are two things. First of all, I'm very proud of the fact that my mother's last manifesto in 2007, before she was assassinated, she was the first Pakistani politician to have climate on her agenda. Uh, and I often think that had we started addressing things then in 2007, 9, maybe we wouldn't be here today. But despite all of that, I was not the, you know, the most hyper of climate activists. Like, okay, I got it. We, we'll do some wind, we'll do some solar, and hopefully things will be fine. My worldview changed overnight when my home, the villages around it, the people that I know, it was suddenly just water as far as the eye could see. It, 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 and, and now, yeah, frankly, I go Greta. I, 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 I'm <laughs> completely, uh, as in, it is, we've been forced. From uh, until it, you know, until it doesn't happen to you, you don't really know uh, what's coming. And now that it's happened to us, the thought that this could happen regularly, uh, it devastated me because I've never felt so disempowered in that moment. Mm. What do you do when overnight 33 million people need your help? You don't have the tents, you don't have the rations, you can't, you don't. We, we're usually used to drought. We don't have boats. How do we get out to these? It was. The, the most uh, difficult period in, in my public life. And it's, it's not on the agenda, it's not in the media um, conversation, but on the ground, it's, it, we're feeling this like uh, severely. Well, this is why I wanted to ask you about it. I, I thought it was Thanks, important Mike. work that you're doing. Um, you know, the, uh, the Taliban is back in power in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. I, I think my, my biggest curiosity, uh, since they are the government in Afghanistan, they're your, your neighbor, what's it like negotiating with them? What's it like when you have to? So that's meet an with interesting them. question. Um, okay, so the, the the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, are are now in uh, the interim government there, uh, and that is a result of the Doha, Doha deal process that they negotiated directly with the United States, um, and um, we being their neighbor, even though like the rest of the world we haven't recognized them diplomatically, etc., uh, are forced to engage with the reality on our border. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to sort of wash our hands and turn our backs and, and pretend uh, that nothing has changed. Uh, and we are advocating not only for ourselves, but for the international community uh, to also engage with them. 
Uh, I believe that we were off to a positive start initially, but uh, given what's happened with women's education uh, and their right to access education, it's becoming incredibly difficult uh, for me uh, or others like me who do want to engage with them, do want to find solutions to the problems the people of Afghanistan are facing because they're taking these decisions uh, that at the very least, I mean, to say it the most diplomatically than I can, I mean, it's not helping us help them. Um, and our, our consistent uh, concern is that whatever happens in Afghanistan, Pakistan is going to be the first people to feel the consequences. This is this old saying that um, if, if Kabul uh, sneezes, Islamabad catches a cold. And we're already seeing that. We have the, 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 uh, the United Nations says that 97% of the population in Afghanistan are falling beneath the poverty line. That means that the number of refugees and their exodus is, is going to be affected. Pakistan has already accepted millions of refugees in the past, but thousands, hundreds of thousands of refugees have come over since the fall of Kabul. Uh, the more the economic situation deteriorates in Afghanistan, the more cannon, cannon fodder the terrorist groups over there are going to have, the more people they're going to be able to recruit to their cause. Uh, and we have seen, since the fall of Kabul, a steady uptick of terrorist activity in Pakistan. If um, there's a regime that says that girls can't get education in Afghanistan, it's not going to be too long till politicians are going to start popping up in my neck of the woods saying that we should also not let girls have access to mm. education. So I think, A, it's incredibly important to engage with them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, th my request to them and, and, and through your t TV show to them would be, like, let girls learn, guys. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, yeah. the contrast that you just set up uh, is, is certainly pronounced. And, and um, you know, most Americans, I think, still associate Pakistan with harboring bin Laden, with issues of terror. How do we move beyond that? In terms of U.S.-Pakistan relations, what, you know, what's next? Look, I get, so how do we move beyond that? I think that um, at that, whatever happened during the, sort of the war on terror and, and the entire period that followed, there's, like a f there's a fog of war. And that colors everyone's decision making, everyone's perception. Uh, what we have now is a reality in Afghanistan, a reality that has very serious consequences, first for Pakistan, but all the issues I mentioned whether it's uh, the re re refugees or terrorism. It's Pakistan's problem today. Tomorrow it'll be other countries' problem. We have to get serious about uh, engaging on the topic of Afghanistan. I believe that in the, based on the facts on the ground, the position and perspective of, uh, of Pakistan and the United States, actually we meet eye to eye. We, we, we see things uh, quite, sim I mean, you know, we're basically on the same page. Uh, and whatever has happened in the past, we should be able to have honest conversations about that. And there can be many studies and analysis about what went wrong where. But it's also time for us to get working together on what we're going to do about the future, what we're going to do about the present day. And that's what I've been working on with my counterpart, Secretary Blinken. I have one last question for you. You know, I know regardless of uh, your political party or your political opposition, clearly you are the youngest person to, to serve in this role. Um, what's your message to other young people who feel called to serve? Oh, never give up and give it your best shot. I can't tell you the amount of times, uh, for example, uh, when we removed Mr. Khan from his prime ministership, it was the first time in Pakistan's history that a dictator didn't come in and kick out a prime minister, that a judge didn't order the removal of a prime minister. But for the first time, our parliament voted them out. 
And that idea, that proposition came from me. But it took me two years to convince everybody else because no one believed that it would happen. And ultimately, it did. So the one thing that I've learned um, from what I'm doing, that it's difficult and it's tough and all those other things. But the more young people we have who get to look at things for the long term and not just sort of the imminent future, the short term solution, but actually have to live with the consequences of their decisions, uh, the better decisions we can make. Thank you for joining us and thank you for your candor. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Hortis. I appreciate it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this. Thank you so much. Really detailed, the, the climate stuff. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. show for tonight but before we go please consider supporting south asian youth action they provide accessible safe and culturally affirming year-round programming to new york city students if you can support them in their work please donate at the link below explore more shows from the daily show podcast universe by searching the daily show wherever you get your podcasts watch the daily show weeknights at 11 10 central on comedy central and stream full episodes anytime on paramount plus This has been a Comedy Central podcast. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 